Maddie told Hattie about a thing she saw. Two big horns and a woolly jaw. Woolly bully. Woolly bully for you, stout yeoman. This month, this this week, this 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 season, we are being sponsored by bunnyslippers.com and their Highland Cow Wooly Bully Slippers. It doesn't say Wooly Bully on the website. It's just what I'm saying because I've had that song stuck in my head since I got these comfortable, comfortable wool slippers that I've been strolling around the studio with. Go to bunnyslippers.com. Check them out yourself. Wooly Bully. That's not their name. Highland Cow Slippers. Highland Cow Slippers. Ooh, they're so soft and they're so fuzzy. And probably the next convention that I'll be at, I'll throw a pair out in the audience for everyone. Wooly Bully Slippers from bunnyslippers.com. And you know what? I can't talk about bunnyslippers.com without talking about my super cool, greasy Tony's t-shirt. It's a three-quarter length sleeve shirt. I'm just talking about it because I love this shirt. They don't expect me to talk about it. I just love... Dressing like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. It's, uh, I don't know. He's my, he's my Patronus, I guess one would say. All right. You know what we're talking about this week? We're not talking about anything this week. We're listening, people. We're listening. We're listening to Jules Verne. It's his, it's his birth month this month. Uh, and we're going to be covering, we're going to be talking about the Antarctic mystery. Wahaha. Yes, the Antarctic mystery where the Antarctic is more broken than my various accents that I do throughout the intro to this show. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo, spooky dookie. And, uh, hey, just something that's out there. If you are someone who likes the show and wants to help out the show, why not go to pgttcm.com and go to the donate option. Help the show. Help the show grow. Help repair the equipment. Help me help other podcasters get off the ground as I'm doing with Dave from Dave's Corner of the Universe and Zach Ferguson from Articulate Warbling. If you like either of those, why not help out the show and help them out as well? And also, I'm going to be trying to come up with a larger show, a larger format, something that I wanted People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos to be to begin with. Well, here's some Jewel for Sverne and enough of me talking. Let's go. An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, Chapter 12 Between the Polar Circle and the Ice Wall Since the Halbrane has passed beyond the imaginary curve drawn at twenty-three and a half degrees from the pole, it seems as though she had entered a new region, that region of desolation and silence, as Edgar Poe says, that magic person of splendor and glory in which the Eleanoras singers longed to be shut up to all eternity that immense ocean of light ineffable. It is my belief, to return to less fanciful hypotheses, that the Antarctic region, with a superficies of more than five million of square miles, has remained what our spheroid was during the glacial period. In the summer the southern zone, as we all know, enjoys perpetual day, owing to the rays projected by the orb of light above its horizon in his spiral ascent. Then, so soon as he has disappeared, the long night sets in, a night which is frequently illuminated by the polar aurora or northern lights. It was then, in the season of light, that our schooner was about to sail in these formidable regions. The permanent brightness would not fail us before we should have reached Salal Island, where we felt no doubt of finding the men of the Jane. 
when Captain Len Guy, West, and the old sailors of the crew learned that the schooner had cleared the sixty-sixth parallel of latitude, their rough and sunburnt faces shone with satisfaction. The next day Hurley-Gurley accosted me on the deck with a broad smile and a cheerful manner. "'So then, Mr. Jorling,' said he, "'we've left the famous circle behind us.' "'Not far enough, Boson. not far enough.' "'Ah, that will come, but I am disappointed.' "'In what way?' "'Because we have not done what is usual on board ships on crossing the line.' "'You regret that?' "'Certainly I do, and the Halbrane might have been allowed the ceremony of a southern baptism.' "'A baptism? And whom would you have baptized, Boson, seeing that all our men, like yourself, have already sailed beyond this parallel?' "'We, oh yes, but you. Oh, no, Mr. Shorling. And why, may I ask?' "'Should not that ceremony be performed in your honour? "'True, Boson, this is the first time in the course of my travels "'that I have been in so high a latitude.' "'And you should have been rewarded by a baptism, Mr. Jorling. "'Yes, indeed, but without any big fuss, no drum and trumpet about it, "'and leaving out old Father Neptune with his masquerade. "'If you would permit me to baptize you.' "'So be it, Hurley-Gurley,' said I, putting my hand into my pocket. "'Baptize as you please.' "'Here is something to drink my health with at the nearest tavern. "'Then that will be Bennett Islet or Salal Island, "'provided there are any taverns in those savage islands, "'and any Atkinses to keep them.' "'Tell me, Boson, I always get back to Hunt. "'Does he seem so much pleased to have passed the polar circle "'as the Halbrane's old sailors are?' "'Who knows? There's nothing to be got out of him one way or another. "'But, as I have said before,' "'if he has not already made acquaintance with this ice-barrier. "'What makes you think so?' "'Everything and nothing, Mr. Jorling. "'One feels these things. One doesn't think them. "'Hunt is an old sea-dog who has carried his canvas bag "'into every corner of the world.' "'The boatswain's opinion was mine also, "'and some inexplicable presentiment made me observe Hunt constantly, "'for he occupied a large share of my thoughts.' Early in December the wind showed a northwest tendency, and that was not good for us, but we would have no serious right to complain, so long as it did not blow due southwest. In the latter case, the schooner would have been thrown out of her course, or at least she would have had a struggle to keep in it, and it was better for us, in short, not to stray from the meridian which we had followed since our departure from the new South Orkneys. Captain Len Guy was made anxious by this alteration in the wind, and besides, the speed of the Halbrane was manifestly lessened, for the breeze began to soften on the fourth, and in the middle of the night it died away. The morning the sails hung motionless and shriveled along the masts. Although not a breath reached us, and the surface of the ocean was unruffled, the schooner was rocked from side to side by the long oscillations of the swell coming from the west. "'The sea feels something,' said Captain Len Guy to me. "'And there must be rough weather on that side,' he added, pointing westward. "'The horizon is misty,' I replied, "'but perhaps the sun towards noon.' "'The sun has no strength in this latitude, Mr. Jorling, "'not even in summer. "'Jam!' West came up to us. "'What do you think of the sky?' "'I do not think well of it. "'We must be ready for anything and everything, Captain.' "'Has not the lookout given a warning of the first drifting ice?' I asked. "'Yes,' replied Captain Len Guy, "'and if we get near the icebergs, the damage will not be to them.' 
Therefore, if prudence demands that we should go either to the east or to the west, we shall resign ourselves, but only in case of absolute necessity. The watch had made no mistake. In the afternoon we sighted masses, islets they might be called, of ice, drifting slowly southward, but these were not yet of considerable extent or altitude. These packs were easy to avoid. They could not interfere with the sailing of the Halbrane. But although the wind had hitherto permitted her to keep on course, she was not advancing, and it was exceedingly disagreeable to be rolling about in a rough and hollow sea, which struck our ship's sides most unpleasantly. At about two o'clock it was blowing a hurricane from all the points of the compass. The schooner was terribly knocked about, and the boatswain had the deck cleared of everything that was movable by her rolling and pitching. Fortunately, the cargo could not be displaced, the stowage having been affected with perfect forecast of nautical eventualities. We had not to dread the fate of the Grampus, which was lost owing to negligence in her lading. It will be remembered that the brig turned bottom upwards, and that Arthur Pym and Dirk Peters remained for several days crouching on its keel. Besides, the schooner's pumps did not give a drop of water. The ship was perfectly sound in every part owing to the efficient repairs that had been done during our stay at the Falklands. The temperature had fallen rapidly, and hail, rain, and snow thickened and darkened the air. At ten o'clock in the evening, I must use this word, although the sun remained always above the horizon, the tempest increased, and the captain and his lieutenant, almost unable to hear each other's voices amid the elemental strife, communicated mostly by gestures, which is as good a mode as speech between sailors. I could not make up my mind to retire to my cabin, and, seeking the shelter of the roundhouse, I remained on deck, observing the weather phenomenon and the skill, certainty, celerity, and effect with which the crew carried out the orders of the captain and West. It was a strange and terrible experience for a landsman, even one who had seen so much of the sea and seamanship as I had. At the moment of a certain difficult manoeuvre, four men had to climb to the crossbars of the foremast in order to reef the mainsail. The first who sprang to the ratlines was Hunt. The second was Martin Holt. Burry and one of the recruits followed them. I could not have believed that any man could display such skill and agility as Hunt's. His hands and feet hardly caught the ratlines. Having reached the crossbars first, he stretched himself on the ropes to the end of the yard while Holt went to the other end, and the two recruits remained in the middle. While the men were working, and the tempest was raging round us, a terrible lurch of the ship to starboard, under the stroke of a mountainous wave, flung everything on the deck into wild confusion, and the sea rushed in through the scrubber holes. I was knocked down, and for some moments was unable to rise. So great had been the incline of the schooner, that the end of the yard of the mainsail, was plunged three or four feet into the crest of a wave. When it emerged, Martin Holt, who had been astride on it, had disappeared. A cry was heard, uttered by the sailing-master, whose arm could be seen wildly waving amidst the whiteness of the foam. The sailors rushed to the side and flung out one a rope, another a cask, a third a spar, in short any object of which Martin Holt might lay a hold. At the moment when I struggled up to my feet, I caught sight of a massive substance which cleft the air and vanished in the whirl of the waves. Was this a second accident? No, it was a voluntary action. 
a deed of self-sacrifice. Having finished his task, Hunt had thrown himself into the sea, that he might save Martin Holt. Two men overboard! Yes, two, one, to save the other. And were they not about to perish together? The two heads rose to the foaming surface of the water. Hunt was swimming vigorously, cutting through the waves, and was nearing Martin Holt. They are lost, both lost, exclaimed the captain. The boat, West, the boat! If you give the order to lower it, answered West, I will be the first to get into it, although at the risk of my life, but I must have the order. In unspeakable suspense, the ship's crew and myself had witnessed this scene. None thought of the position of the Halbrane, which was sufficiently dangerous. All eyes were fixed upon the terrible waves. Now fresh cries, the frantic cheers of the crew, rose above the roar of the elements. Hunt had reached the drowning man just as he sank out of sight, had seized hold of him, and was supporting him with his left arm, while Holt, incapable of movement, swayed helplessly about like a weed. With the other arm, Hunt was swimming bravely and making way towards the schooner. A minute which seemed endless passed. The two men, the one dragging the other, were hardly to be distinguished in the midst of the surging waves. At last Hunt reached the schooner, and cut one of the lines hanging over the side. In a minute Hunt and Martin Holt were hoisted on board. The latter was laid down at the foot of the foremast, and the former was quite ready to go to his work. Holt was speedily restored by the aid of vigorous rubbing. His senses came back, and he opened his eyes. "'Martin Holt,' said Captain Len Guy, who was leaning over him, "'you have been brought back from very far.' "'Yes, yes, Captain,' answered Holt, as he looked about him with a searching gaze. "'But who saved me?' "'Hunt!' cried the boatswain. "'Hunt risked his life for you.' As the latter was hanging back, Hurley-Gurley pushed him towards Martin Holt, whose eyes expressed the liveliest gratitude. "'Hunt!' he said. You have saved me, but for you I should have been lost. I thank you. Hunt made no reply. Hunt, resumed Captain Lenguy, don't you hear? The man seemed not to have heard. Hunt, said Martin Holt again, come near to me, I thank you. I want to shake hands with you. And he held out his right hand. Hunt stepped back a few paces, shaking his head with the air of a man who did not want so many compliments for a thing so simple, and quietly walked forward to join his shipmates, who were working vigorously under the orders of West. Decidedly this man was a hero in courage and self-devotion, but equally decided he was a being impervious to impressions, and not on that day either was the boatswain destined to know the color of his words. For three whole days, the sixth, seventh, and eighth of December, the tempest raged in these waters, accompanied by snowstorms, which perceptibly lowered the temperature. It is needless to say that Captain Len Guy proved himself a true seaman, that James West had an eye to everything, that the crew seconded them loyally, and that Hunt was always foremost when there was work to be done or danger to be incurred. In truth, I do not know how to give an idea of this man, what a difference there was between him and most of the sailors recruited at the Falklands, and especially between him and Hearne, the sealing-master. They obeyed, no doubt, for such a master as James West gets himself obeyed, whether with good or ill will. But behind backs what complaints were made, 
what recriminations were exchanged. All this, I feared, was of evil presage for the future. Martin Holt had been able to resume his duties very soon, and he fulfilled them with hearty goodwill. He knew the business of a sailor right well, and was the only man on board who could compete with Hunt in handiness and zeal. "'Well, Holt,' I said to him one day, when he was talking with the boatswain, "'what terms are you on with that queer fellow Hunt now? "'Since the salvage affair, is he a little more communicative?' "'No, Mr. Jorling, I think he even tries to avoid me.' "'To avoid you?' "'Well, he did so before, for that matter.' "'Yes, indeed, that is true,' added Hurley-Gurley. "'I have made the same remark more than once.' "'Then he keeps aloof from you, Holt, as from the others?' from me more than from the others. What is the meaning of that? I don't know, Mr. Jarling. I was surprised at what the two men had said, but a little observation convinced me that Hunt actually did avoid every occasion of coming in contact with Martin Holt. Did he not think that he had a right to Holt's gratitude, although the latter owed his life to him? This man's conduct was certainly very strange. In the early morning of the ninth, the wind showed a tendency to change in the direction of the east, which would mean more manageable weather for us, and in fact, although the sea still remained rough, at about two in the morning it became feasible to put on more sail without risk, and thus the Halbrane regained the course from which she had been driven by the prolonged tempest. In that portion of the Antarctic Sea the ice-packs were more numerous, and there was reason to believe that the tempest, by hastening the smash-up, had broken the barrier of the iceberg wall towards the east. End of chapter 12《An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne, Chapter 13 Along the Front of the Icebergs Although the seas beyond the polar circle were wildly tumultuous, it is but just to acknowledge that our navigation had been accomplished so far under exceptional conditions, and what good luck it would be if the Halbrane in this first fortnight of December were to find the Weddell route open. There I am talking of the Weddell route as though it were a macadamized road, well kept with milestones, and this way to the South Pole on a signpost. The numerous wandering masses of ice gave our men no trouble. They were easily avoided. It seemed likely that no real difficulties would arise until the schooner should have to try to make a passage for herself through the icebergs. Besides, there was no surprise to be feared. The presence of ice was indicated by a yellowish tint in the atmosphere, which the whalers call blink. This is a phenomenon peculiar to the glacial zones, which never deceives the observer. For five successive days the Halbrane sailed without sustaining any damage, without having, even for a moment, had to fear a collision. It is true that in proportion, as she advanced towards the south, the number of ice-packs increased, and the channels became narrower. On the 14th an observation gave us 72 degrees, 37 minutes for latitude, our longitude remaining the same. Between the 42nd and 43rd meridian, this was already a point beyond the Antarctic Circle that few navigators had been able to reach. We were at only two degrees lower than Weddell. The navigation of the schooner naturally became a more delicate matter in the midst of those dim, wan masses soiled with the excretia of birds. Many of them had a leprous look, 
compared with their already considerable volume, how small our little ship, over whose mast some of the icebergs already towered, must have appeared. Captain Len Guy admirably combined boldness and prudence in his command of the ship. He never passed to leeward of an iceberg if the distance did not guarantee the success of any manoeuvre whatsoever that might suddenly become necessary. He was familiar with all the contingencies of ice navigation, and was not afraid to venture into the midst of these flotillas of drifts and packs. That day he said to me, "'Mr. Jorling, this is not the first time that I have tried to penetrate into the polar sea, and without success. Well, if I made the attempt to do this when I had nothing but presumption as to the fate of the Jane to go upon, what shall I not do now that presumption is changed into certainty?' I understand that, Captain, and, of course, your experience of navigation in these waters must increase our chances of success. Undoubtedly, nevertheless, all that lies beyond the fixed icebergs is still unknown for me, as it is for other navigators. The unknown, no, not absolutely, Captain, since we possess the important reports of Weddell, and, I must add, of Arthur Pym also. Yes, I know, they have spoken of the open sea. Do you not believe that such a sea exists? Yes, I do believe it exists, and for valid reasons. In fact, it is perfectly manifest that these masses, called icebergs and ice-fields, could not be formed in the ocean itself. It is the tremendous and irresistible action of the surge which detaches them from the continents or islands of the high latitudes. Then the currents carry them into less cold waters, where their edges are worn by the waves, while the temperatures disintegrates their bases and their sides, which are subjected to thermometric influences. That seems very plain, I replied. Then these masses have come from the icebergs. They clash with them in drifting, sometimes break into the main body, and clear their passage through. Again, we must not judge the southern by the northern zone. The conditions are not identical." Cook has recorded that he never met the equivalent of the Antarctic ice mountains in the Greenland seas, even at a higher latitude. What is the reason? I asked. No doubt that the influence of the south winds is predominant in the northern regions. Now those winds do not reach the northern regions until they have been heated in their passage over America, Asia, and Europe, and they continue to raise the temperature of the atmosphere. The nearest land, ending in the points of Cape of Good Hope, Patagonia, and Tasmania, does not modify the atmospheric currents. That is an important observation, Captain, and it justifies your opinion with regard to an open sea. Yes, open, at least for ten degrees behind the icebergs. Let us then only get through that obstacle, and our greatest difficulty will have been conquered. You are right in saying that the existence of that open sea has been formally recognized by Weddell, and by Arthur Pym, Captain, and by Arthur Pym. From the 15th of December, the difficulties of navigation increased with the number of the drifting masses. The wind, however, continued to be uniformly favorable, showing no tendency to veer to the south. The breeze freshened now and then, and we had to take in sail. When this occurred, we saw the sea foaming along the sides of the ice-packs, covering them with sprays like the rocks on the coast of a floating island, but without hindering their onward march. Our crew could not fail to be impressed 
by the sight of the schooner making her way through these moving masses. The new men among them, at least, for the old hands had seen such manoeuvres before. But they soon became accustomed to it, and took it all for granted. It was necessary to organise the lookout ahead with the greatest care. West had a cask fixed at the head of the foremast, which is called a crow's nest, and from thence an unremitting watch was kept. The sixteenth was a day of excessive fatigue to the men. The packs and drifts were so close that only very narrow and winding passageway between them was to be found, so that the working of the ship was more than commonly laborious. Under these circumstances none of the men grumbled, but Hunt distinguished himself by his activity. Indeed, he was admitted by Captain Len Guy and the crew to be an incomparable seaman, but there was something mysterious about him that excited the curiosity of them all. At this date the Halbring could not be very far from the icebergs. If she held on in her course in that direction, she would certainly reach them before long, and would then have only to seek for a passage. Hitherto, however, the lookout had not been able to make out between the icebergs an unbroken crest of ice beyond the ice-fields. Constant and minute precautions were indispensable all day on the 16th, for the helm, which was loosened by merciless blows and bumps, was in danger of being unshipped. The sea-mammals had not forsaken these seas. Whales were seen in great numbers, and it was a fairy-like spectacle when several of them spouted simultaneously. With fin-backs and hump-backs, porpoises of colossal size appeared, and these Hearn harpooned cleverly when they came within range. The flesh of these creatures was much relished on board, and Endicott had cooked it in his best manner. As for the usual Antarctic birds, petrels, pigeons, and cormorants, they passed in screaming flocks, and legions of penguins ranged along the edges of the ice-fields, watched the evolutions of the schooner. These penguins are the real inhabitants of these dismal solitudes, and nature could not have created a type more suited to the desolation of the glacial zone. On the morning of the 17th, the man in the crow's nest at last signaled the icebergs. Five or six miles to the south, a long dentated crest appeared itself, plainly standing out against the fairly clear skies, and all along it drifted thousands of ice-packs. This motionless barrier stretched before us from the northwest to the southeast, and by merely sailing along it the schooner would still gain some degrees southwards. When the Halbrane was within three miles of the icebergs, she lay to in the middle of a wide basin which allowed her complete freedom of movement. A boat was lowered, and Captain Len Guy got into it with the boatswain, four sailors at the oars and one at the helm. The boat was pulled in the direction of the enormous rampart. Vain search was made for a channel through which the schooner could have slipped, and after three hours of this fatiguing reconnoitering, the men returned to the ship. Then came a squall of rain and snow, which caused the temperatures to fall to thirty-six degrees, 2.22 degrees Celsius, above zero, and shut out the view of the ice rampart from us. During the next twenty-four hours the schooner lay within four miles of the icebergs. To bring her nearer would have been to get among winding channels from which it might not have been possible to extricate her. Not that Captain Len Guy did not long to do this, in his fear of passing some opening unperceived. Chapter 
"'If I had a consort,' he said, "'I would sail closer along the icebergs, "'and it is a great advantage to be two "'when one is on such an enterprise as this. "'But the Halbrane is alone, "'and if she were to fail us.' "'Even though we approached no nearer to the icebergs "'than prudence permitted, "'our ship was exposed to great risk.' and West was constantly obliged to change his trim in order to avoid the shock of an ice-field. Fortunately, the wind blew from east to nor northeast, without variation, and it did not freshen. Had a tempest arisen, I know not what would have become of the schooner. Yes, though I do know too well, she would have been lost and all on board of her. In such a case, the Halbrane could not have escaped. We must have been flung on the base of the barrier." After a long examination, Captain Len Guy had to renounce the hope of finding a passage through the terrible wall of ice. It remained only to endeavour to reach the southeast point of it. At any rate, by following that course, we lost nothing in latitude, and in fact, on the 18th, the observation taken made the 73rd parallel the position of the Halbrane. I must repeat, however, that navigation in the Antarctic seas will probably never be accomplished under more fallacious circumstances. The precocity of the summer season, the permanence of the north wind, the temperature of forty-nine degrees at the lowest, all this was the best of good fortune. I need not add that we enjoyed perpetual light, and the whole twenty-four hours round the sun's rays reached us from every point of the horizon. Two or three times the captain approached within two miles of the icebergs, it was impossible but that the vast masses must have been subjected to climatric influences. Ruptures must surely have taken place at some points. But his search had no result, and we had to fall back into the current from west to east. I must observe at this point that during all our search we never descried land or the appearance of land out at sea, as indicated on the charts of preceding navigators. These maps are incomplete, no doubt, but sufficiently exact in their main lines. I am aware that ships have often passed over the indicated bearings of land. This, however, was not admissible in the case of Salal. If the Jane had been able to reach the islands, it was because that portion of the Antarctic Sea was free, and in so early a year we need not fear any obstacle in that direction. At last, on the 19th, between two and three o'clock in the afternoon, a shout from the crow's nest was heard. "'What is it?' roared West. "'The iceberg wall is split on the southeast. What is beyond? Nothing in sight.' It took West very little time to reach the point of observation, and we all waited below, how impatiently may be imagined. What if the lookout were mistaken, if some optical delusion? But West, at all events, would make no mistake.' After ten interminable minutes, his clear voice reached us on the deck. "'Open sea!' he cried. Unanimous cheers made answer. The schooner's head was put to the southeast, hugging the wind as much as possible. Two hours later we had doubled the extremity of the ice barrier, and there lay before our eyes our sparkling sea, entirely open. End of chapter 13 Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne Chapter 14 A Voice in a Dream
Entirely free from ice? No. It would have been premature to affirm this as a fact. A few icebergs were visible in the distance, while some drifts and packs were still going east. Nevertheless, the break-up had been very thorough on that side, and the sea was in reality open, since a ship could sail freely. "'God has come to our aid,' said Captain Len Guy. "'May he be pleased to guide us to the end.' "'In a week,' I remarked, "'our schooner might come in sight of Salal Island.' "'Provided that the east wind lasts, Mr. Jorling. "'Don't forget that in sailing along the icebergs to their eastern extremity, "'the Halbrane went out of her course, "'and she must be brought back towards the west. "'The breeze is for us, Captain. "'And we shall profit by it, "'for my intention is to make for Bennet Islet. "'It was there that my brother first landed, "'and so soon as we shall have sighted that island, "'we shall be certain that we are on the right route. "'Today,' When I have ascertained our position exactly, we shall steer for Bennet Islet. Who knows, but we may come upon some fresh sign. It is not impossible, Mr. Jorling. I need not say that recourse was had to the surest guide within our reach, that voracious narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which I read and re-read with intense attention, fascinated as I was by the idea that I might be permitted to behold with my own eyes those strange phenomena of nature in the Antarctic world, which I, in common with all Edgar Poe's readers, had hitherto regarded as creations of the most imaginative writer, who ever gave voice by his pen to the fantasies of a unique brain. No doubt a great part of the wonders of Arthur Gordon Pym's narrative would prove pure fiction, but even if a little of the marvellous story were found to be true, how great a privilege would be mine! The picturesque and wonderful side of the story we were studying as gospel truth had little charm but the slightest interest for Captain Len Guy. He was indifferent to everything in Pym's narrative that did not relate directly to the castaways of Salal Island. His mind was solely and constantly set upon their rescue. According to the narrative of Arthur Pym, Jane experienced serious difficulties due to bad weather from the 1st to the 4th of January, 1828. It was not until the morning of the 5th, in latitude 23 degrees, 15 minutes, that she found a free passage through the last iceberg that barred her way. The final difference between our position and the Jane in a parallel ease was that the Jane took 15 days to accomplish the distance of 10 degrees, or 600 miles, which separated her on the 5th of January from Salal Island, while well, on the 19th of December, the Halbrane was only about 7 degrees, or 400 miles, off the island. Bennet Islet, where Captain Guy intended to put in for 24 hours, was 50 miles nearer. Our voyage was progressing under prosperous conditions. We were no longer visited by sudden hail and snowstorms, or those rapid falls of temperature which tried the crew of the Jane so sorely. A few ice-floes drifted by us, occasionally peopled as tourists throng a pleasure yacht by penguins, and also by dusky seals, lying flat upon the white surfaces like enormous leeches. Above this strange flotilla we trace the incessant flight of petrels, pigeons, black puffins, divers, grebe, sterns, cormorants, and the sooty black albatross of the high latitudes. Huge medusas, exquisitely tinted, floated on the water like spread parasols. 
Among the denizens of the deep, captured by the crew of the schooner with line and net, I noted more particularly a sort of giant John Dory. Dorade, three feet in length, with firm and savory flesh. During the night, or rather what ought to have been the night of the 19th to 20th, my sleep was disturbed by a strange dream. Yes, there could be no doubt that it was only a dream. Nevertheless, I think it well to record it here, because it is an additional testimony to the haunting influence under which my brain was beginning to labor. I was sleeping at two hours after midnight, and was awakened by a plaintive and continuous murmuring sound. I opened, or I imagined I opened my eyes. My cabin was in profound darkness. The murmur began again. I listened, and it seemed to me that a voice, a voice which I did not know, whispered these words. Pym, Pym, poor Pym. Evidently this could only be a delusion, unless indeed someone had got into my cabin. The door was locked. Pym, repeated the voice, poor Pym must never be forgotten. This time the words were spoken so close to my ear, and what was the meaning of the injunction, and why was it addressed to me? And besides, had not Pym, after his return to America, met with a sudden and deplorable death, the circumstances or the details being unknown? I began to doubt whether I was in my right mind, and shook myself into complete wakefulness, recognizing that I had been disturbed by an extremely vivid dream due to some cerebral cause. I turned out of my berth, and, pushing back the shutter, looked out of my cabin. No one aft on the deck except Hunt, who was at the helm. I had nothing to do but to lie down again, and this I did. It seemed to me that the name of Arthur Pym was repeated in my hearing several times. Nevertheless, I fell asleep and did not wake until morning, when I retained only a vague impression of this occurrence, which soon faded away. No other incident at that period of our voyage calls for notice. Nothing particular occurred on board our schooner. The breeze from the north, which had forsaken us, did not recur, and only the current carried the halbrane towards the south. This caused a delay unbearable to our impatience. At last, on the 21st, the usual observations gave 82 degrees 50 minutes of latitude and 42 degrees 20 minutes of west longitude. Bennett Island, if it had any existence, could not be far off now. Yes, the islet did exist, and its bearings were those indicated by Arthur Pym. At six o'clock in the evening, one of the crew cried out that there was land ahead on the port side. End of chapter 14 An Antarctic Mystery by Jules Verne Chapter 15 Bennett Islet the Halbrane was then within sight of Bennet Islet. The crew urgently needed rest, so the disembarkation was deferred until the following day, and I went back to my cabin. The night passed without disturbance, and when day came not a craft of any kind was visible on the waters, not a native on the beach. There were no huts upon the coast, no smoke arose in the distance to indicate that Bennet Islet was inhabited. But William Guy had not found any trace of human beings there, and what I saw of the islet answered to the description given by Arthur Pym. It rose upon a rocky base of about a league in circumference, 
and was so arid that no vegetation existed on its surface. "'Mr. Jorling,' said Captain Len Guy, "'do you observe a promontory in the direction of the northeast?' "'I observe it, Captain.' "'Is it not formed of heaped-up rocks which look like giant bales of cotton?' "'That is so, and just what the narrative describes.' "'Then all we have to do is land on the promontory, Mr. Jorling. "'Who knows but we may come across some vestige of the crew of the Jane, "'supposing them to have succeeded in escaping from Salal Island.' "'The speaker was devouring the islet with his eyes. "'What must his thoughts, his desires, his impatience have been?' but there was a man whose gaze was set upon the same point even more fixedly that man was hunt before we left the halbrane len guy enjoined the most minute and careful watchfulness upon his lieutenant this was a charge which west did not need our exploration would take only half a day at most if the boat had not returned in the afternoon a second was to be sent in search of us look sharp also after our recruits added the captain "'Don't be uneasy, Captain,' replied the lieutenant. "'Indeed, since you want four men at the oars, "'you had better take them from among the new ones. "'That will leave four less troublesome fellows on board.' "'This was a good idea, "'for, under the deplorable influence of Hearn, "'the discontent of his shipmates from the Falklands "'was on the increase. "'The boat being ready, four of the new crew took their places forward, "'while Hunt, at his own request, was steersman.' Captain Len Guy, the boatswain, and myself, all well armed, seated ourselves aft, and we started for the northern point of the islet. In the course of an hour, we had doubled the promontory and come out in sight of a little bay whose shores the boats of the Jane had touched. Hunt steered for this bay, gliding with remarkable skill between the rocky points which struck up here and there. One would have thought he knew his way among them. We disembarked on a stony coast. The stones were covered with sparse lichen. The tide was already ebbing, leaving uncovered the sandy bottom of a sort of beach strewn with black blocks, resembling big nail-heads. Two men were left in charge of the boat while we landed amid the rocks, and, accompanied by the other two, Captain Len Guy, the boatswain, Hunt, and I, proceeded towards the centre where we found some rising ground, from whence we could see the whole extent of the islet. But there was nothing to be seen on any side, absolutely nothing. On coming down from the slight eminence, Hunt went on in front, as it had been agreed that he was to be our guide. We followed him, therefore, as he led us towards the southern extremity of the islet. Having reached the point, Hunt looked carefully on all sides of him, then stooped and showed us a piece of half-rotten wood lying among the scattered stones. "'I remember,' I exclaimed, "'Arthur Pym speaks of a piece of wood with traces of carving on it which appeared to have belonged to the bow of a ship. "'Among the carving my brother fancied he could trace the design of a tortoise,' added Captain Len Guy. "'Just so,' I replied, "'but Arthur Pym pronounced that resemblance doubtful.' No matter, the piece of wood is still in the same place that is indicated in the narrative. So we may conclude that since the Jane cast anchor here, no other crew has set foot upon Bennet Islet. It follows that we should only lose time in looking out for any tokens of another landing. We shall know nothing until we reach Salal Island. Yes, Salal Island, replied the captain. We then retraced our steps in the direction of the bay. 
In various places we observed fragments of coral reef, and bouche de mer was so abundant that our schooner might have taken a full cargo of it. Hunt walked on in silence, with downcast eyes, until, as we were close enough upon the beach to the east, he, being about ten paces ahead, stopped abruptly, and summoned us to him by a hurried gesture. In an instant we were by his side. Hunt had evinced no surprise on the subject of the piece of wood first found, but his attitude changed when he knelt down in front of a worm-eaten plank lying on the sand. He felt it all over with his huge hands, as though he were seeking some tracery on its rough surface whose signification might be intelligible to him. The black paint was hidden under the thick dirt that had accumulated upon it. The plank had probably formed part of a ship's stern, as the boatswain requested us to observe. "'Yes, yes,' repeated Captain Len Guy. "'It made part of a stern.' Hunt, who still remained kneeling, nodded his big head in assent. "'But,' I remarked, "'this plank must have been cast upon Bennet Islet from a wreck. The cross-currents must have found it in the open sea end.' "'If that were so,' cried the captain. The same thought had occurred to both of us. What was our surprise, indeed, our amazement, our unspeakable emotion, when Hunt showed us eight letters, cut in the plank, not painted, but hollow and distinctly traceable with the finger. It was only too easy to recognize the letters of two names arranged in two lines thus. A. N. L. I. E. P. O. L. The Jane of the Liverpool the schooner commanded by Captain William Guy. What did it matter that time had blurred the other letters? Did not those suffice to tell the name of the ship and the port she belonged to, the Jane of the Liverpool? Captain Len Guy had taken the plank in his hands, and now he pressed his lips to it, while tears fell from his eyes. It was a fragment of the Jane. I did not utter a word until the captain's emotion had subsided. As for Hunt, I had never seen such a lightning glance from his brilliant hawk-like eyes as he now cast towards the southern horizon. Captain Len Guy rose. Hunt, without a word, placed the plank on his shoulder, and we continued our route. When we had made the tour of the island, we halted at the place where the boat had been left under the charge of two sailors, and about half-past two in the afternoon we were again on board. Early on in the morning of the 23rd of December, the Halbrane put off from Bennet Islet, and we carried away with us new and convincing testimony to the catastrophe which Salal Island had witnessed. During the day I observed the sea-water very attentively, and it seemed to me less deeply blue than Arthur Pym describes it. Nor had we met a single specimen of his monster of the austral fauna, an animal three feet long, six inches high, with four short legs, long coral claws, a silky body, a rat's tail, a cat's head, the hanging ears, blood-red lips, and white teeth of a dog. The truth is that I regarded several of these details as suspect, and entirely due to an over-imaginative temperament. Seated far aft in the ship, I read Edgar Poe's book with sedulous attention, but I was not unaware of the fact that Hunt, whenever his duties furnished him with an opportunity, observed me pertinaciously, and with looks of singular meaning. 
and in fact i was reperusing the end of chapter seventeen in which arthur pym acknowledged his responsibility for the sad and tragic events which were the result of his advice it was in fact he who over-persuaded captain william guy urging him to profit by so tempting an opportunity of solving the great problem relating to the antarctic continent and besides while accepting that responsibility did he not congratulate himself on having been the instrument of a great discovery and having aided in some degree to reveal to science one of the most marvellous secrets which had ever claimed its attention at six o'clock the sun disappeared behind a thick curtain of mist after midnight the breeze freshened and the halbrane's progress marked a dozen additional miles on the morrow the good ship was less than the third of a degree that is to say, less than twenty miles from Salal Island. Unfortunately, just after midday, the wind fell. Nevertheless, thanks to the current, the island of Salal was signalled at forty-five minutes past six in the evening. The anchor was cast, a watch was set, with loaded firearms within hand-reach, and boarding nets ready. The halbrane ran no risk of being surprised. Two eyes were watching on board, especially those of Hunt, whose gaze never quitted the horizon of that southern zone for an instant. End of chapter 15 Thank you again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, D.V. Spitzer. Remember, you can help out the show by going to pgttcm.com. Follow the show notes and follow the show on social media uh find us anywhere you catch your pods at your podcatchers and yeah we're on instagram we're on facebook just look for us there and look for us wherever you look for podcasts thank you again donate money help out the show buy a t-shirt send us a you know contact us get in touch all right thank you again and have a great day